Hello and welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. My name is Tristan Stevenson, your host. On this special episode, I am rewinding back to some of our most interesting discussions on well-being and looking after yourself in the drinks industry. Something that I think we can all agree can be challenging at times. On the subject of mindfulness and building mental resilience, I spoke with Andrew Johnson. He's a meditation and mindfulness practitioner, clinical hypnotherapist and co-founder of a hospitality charity which aims to help keep your mental health in check. In this episode we dived into the difference between mindfulness and meditation and what you can do to combat anxiety and focus on the present. Well there's a variety of different types of meditation. Meditation in its truest form is is really sitting and connecting with yourself on a deeper level but it's not necessarily being in the moment. Meditation is much more about finding your true self. Um, it can be as simple as sitting eyes closed and following the breath. But there are guided meditations which will take you on a journey for a specific purpose. Gaining more clarity of thought. Getting in touch with more of your resources. So for a specific reason. Um, you're absolutely right. Meditation and mindfulness is like one of those Venn diagrams that meets and there's a, there is that part in the middle that's, that's so similar. Mindfulness, I believe, doesn't really have the baggage that meditation does. A lot of people still regard meditation as a spiritual practice, and of course it can be, if that's a route that you want to go down. Almost religious, and, it's, and it is seen as... Um, a religious spiritual experience and of course it's not it can be but it's not also a lot of the imagery that people use for meditation which i steer away from is you know the sitting in a lotus position sitting with in a, in a mudra with the the, the fingers touching etc etc and there's a great deal of people i believe that would benefit hugely from meditation and mindfulness but perhaps are put off with that sort of imagery because they can't possibly imagine themselves getting into a lotus position. I can't even do it. Yeah, there's the athletic component of it, right, that might be a bit off-putting to some people, being able to bend your body into that position. But of course, you don't have to be able to sit in a lotus position to meditate, do you? Um, Correct. Absolutely. You can meditate. A lot of athletes will find that, you know, especially the, the classic is the long-distance runner. They're in that rhythm that rhythm, that rhythm, and they get into a meditative state, a deep meditative state. Now, they might not call, not call it meditation, but they are there, and it's mindful because they are there right in that moment. Yeah. Well, now you're speaking my language because I'm a long-distance runner, and um, I, uh, yeah, I got into it because, mostly because, well, there's two reasons. One, it meant that I could kind of eat whatever I wanted because um, I'd burn it off running around the place. And two, because I found it to be like enormously beneficial in respect of, you know, getting my thoughts in check, um, sort of almost rebooting, defragmenting the hard drive that is my brain, um, you know, relieving stress and all that kind of thing. Especially when you sort of become more comfortable running. I don't think most people get this when they're new to running because it's it's quite you know, it's hard work and you're breathing hard and your lungs sometimes burn. But once you get very comfortable and fit running, um, you can get into 
like you say, some sort of meditative state, a state of mindfulness, a flow state. I'm not entirely sure what the difference is between those three, but, um, well, meditation and mindfulness we've, we've touched on, but flow state, which is, you know, another kind of state of mind, I guess, um, where you're alleviating some control, I would say, over what your thoughts and what your, your body is doing and allowing things to kind of move naturally without, without kind of thinking about it too much. Anyway, whatever that is, afterwards you have this wonderful sort of refreshing feeling like everything seems to make a little bit more sense you can problem solve far more efficiently the things that before that run and it doesn't have to be a run of course it could be cycling or, or some some other sort of extended um effort um everything starts to make more sense and it's sometimes it's quite incredible how the, the sense of clarity that you get after exercise and you sort of marvel at how these things weren't so clear beforehand. Um, but, you know, at that point in time, your mind perhaps wasn't working in the most efficient way it could have done. And for me, anyway, there's something about exercise that, sol that solves that problem. It fixes it. Yeah, there's, there's absolutely no doubt of that. And in so many of the therapeutic practices for specific presenting issues that I've learned over the years, in the top three solutions is exercise. There's, there's absolutely no doubt of that. Absolutely no doubt. The conscious mind, so we are made up, obviously, that this is a very brief way of describing it, a simplistic way of describing it, but we're, we have the conscious mind and the unconscious mind, the iceberg principle, tiny percentage above the water and a huge percentage unconscious. The conscious mind, the mind that we think with all the time, doesn't really take much to get overwhelmed. It's five or six things that happen. If we find ourselves in a state of anxiety or panic or we feel scattered, we can't see solutions. We just simply can't. The brain doesn't work that way. It's being overwhelmed. In doing exercise or in doing meditation or mindfulness the, the and grounding ourselves in whichever way you, you wish to, the conscious mind gets dissolved within the body and we allow access to the resources, the unconscious mind. And it is then that the clarity comes through. It is then that the little epiphanies come through. It is then when we get in touch with our resources that we're able to see solutions to the problems that are facing us. Next up, I had the pleasure of hosting not one, not two, but three guests on a single episode. James Fowler, who is the founder of Terroir and the Larder House uh, venues in the south of the UK. Lauren Mote, the former Diageo Global Cocktailian. And Linda Rowe Flynn, head bartender at Cask in Cork, Ireland. We explored one of the hottest topics in the industry over the past few years, that of sustainability and what it means to each of them, as well as their advice on how we can run a more sustainable and therefore happy venue. So let's start by sort of asking each of you what sustainability means to you. Let's go with you first, Linda, if that's all right. Uh, yeah, I guess for me, uh, sustainability is such a broad concept. Um, it kind of starts for me with um, nature and the fact that it generally doesn't create any waste. So we would try to mimic that in the bar where we, any natural waste that we produce, we take that and we give it back to the earth. And then anything that's man-made that we can't give back to the earth, that we reduce our use of that or find an alternative or 
Um, yeah, so it's trying to minimise our impact on the environment and not compromise what we're doing when we when we do that. Mm, so it's like sort of working in harmony in a natural way. Uh, yeah, where so possible. Mimicking nature in the yeah. operation. Cool, interesting. And um, what about your venues, James? Because I know. You've you've taken particularly with one of them, Tower, an extreme approach to sustainability. It's really quite commendable. So, what does sustainability mean to you? Yeah, to me personally, I mean, I love nature. Um, I studied marine biology at university, so I kind of got to understand what's going on in the oceans. And um, for me, it's actually been brilliant to apply some of the things that we've learned about, especially when it comes to sourcing seafood. Um, but Tower, um, the our kind of sustainable restaurant, was kind of developed from. We wanted to open another venue, a bit of a kind of high-paced tapas style, as opposed to the the other formal restaurant that I've got. And I just kind of felt that social responsibility to build it and design it in the most eco-possible way because um, there's materials out there now and there's ways and concepts of doing it. Um, so all the way through through the food and drink menu, we basically use super-localised super products as much as possible. And if we can't um, literally get anything that's local, we kind of make our own versions of it in our drinks and food. Um, it's really awkward for the bartenders and the chefs, but it, you know it's a, it's a real challenge to kind of replicate global flavours using local, like um, yeah, our own versions of it. Mm. And what about you, Lauren? What does sustainability mean? Because you travel around a lot and you talk about this a lot as well. I know. Um, so what, what's, what insight have you got into the sort of mood on sustainability across the world? Well, I 100% agree with Linda and with, uh, is it James or Jimmy? What do you prefer? Um, either or. Okay. It's James right now, but by the end of the podcast, Jimmy I'd James. like to think okay. it'll be Jimmy. <laughs> Jimmy James. Um, I, I agree fundamentally with both of you. And, um, you know, this is my 20th year as a, as a bartender this year. And I've I've traveled to over 60 countries over the last probably seven years. And I've revisited some of the same countries more than twice or three times. And I also come from the food world. And my biggest, uh, I guess, mentors and, and people that I would look to for uh, the answers on how to move forward always came from chefs and farmers rather than bartenders. I also come from, you know, the edge of the universe on the, the western coast of, of Canada. So we actually had more in common with understanding this uh, sustainability piece as it relates to the growing food industry from, you know, the 1970s, 80s, 90s, uh, up until this moment. So I, I felt that my perspective on sustainability within the industry and how I could play a role in that um, would be start with chefs and start with farms first and see how we can trickle that into the bar. And I think all all of us are actually speaking the same language here. And I'd love to share over the course of this podcast what, what we've seen in some other parts of the world. Mm. It's interesting what you say about the kind of necessity to be sustainable when you are you know, operating in a far-flung place. But I feel like, in a way, a lot of the practices that are being put in place in bars in cities now are things that would have just have to have happened uh, naturally in the past due to the necessity of waiting for the seasons, to minimising waste because you've really got nowhere to put it, um, sourcing locally. So, in a way, it f a lot of this sustainability stuff feels like a return to old values. Mm -hmm. um, so and that kind of for me makes it all the more satisfying, you know, because it's things that we know. This is stuff that we've done before, not us, but you know, the people who came before, mm -hmm. humans, uh, human beings that came before us. That's exactly it. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying that. <laughs> <laughs> not animals, but humans. <laughs> um, so, James, back to you. 
I, I want to hear a little bit more about some of the stuff that you're doing at Tailwar, and I'm pretty sure that anyone listening to this podcast will be really super impressed by some of the stuff you're doing. But first of all, can you give a few tips on some of the simpler things that any bar or restaurant can do to reduce their carbon footprint, um, to reduce the amount of waste they're producing, and just generally have a slightly more sustainable business? Yeah, of course. Well, the, um, the whole Tailwar concept started by my obsession with going through the bins at work <laughs> it sounds a bit bizarre but um <laughs> just kind of having a look occasionally and seeing what, what gets thrown out by the kitchens and by the bartenders um had a few bartenders in the past that just take the peel off oranges and throw the rest of the orange away oh. and it's mm. just to garnish it old-fashioned you know and that kind of really you know or bags of brown mint like whole bags mm. and they just get stuck at the back of fridges so I, you know that kind they of they do have a tendency to cling to the wall of fridges <laughs> yeah they do don't they <laughs> Um, so that kind of pushed on and so basically look at what you're throwing away and then kind of you know work from there backwards I guess yeah. um, deliveries is obviously the, the big one in terms of ordering fresh products and packaging um, so we refuse all packaging at Tewa. Um we basically got delivery boxes that um, all the delivery people have to use to bring everything in um, they go through our washing machines as well so they're all hygienic so all our fish meat everything comes through there um, we basically just compost everything, so we don't have anything that's printed or you know no business cards or anything at all. It's all digital. Um, and in terms of sourceability, it's literally all sourced from um, eight kilometres away from the, the restaurant. Luckily enough, I live on a farm, so I'm working really closely with the farmer there. I actually moved to the farm as a kind of benefit to Tawa, so not everyone's going to have that opportunity. Um, and then over the last two years, I've found other farmers literally... Again, another five-minute walk away from that farm who can produce everything all year round for us. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's about kind of having a look around and seeing what is local and kind of getting those local ties. And I guess what you're talking about is that whole pre-industrialised um, where you actually used to talk to the people who are growing it mm. rather than just looking at a packet and reading on the back of it, you know. Mm. Um, my farmers hassle the hell out of me trying to buy stuff and they're calling me up at random times just to come and pick up stuff. So I go around and see them every day, or every two days or so, pick it up, drop it to the restaurants. So, yeah, and developing a menu that, of course, is seasonal. Um, seasons are going to drive sustainability. Um, that's a simple thing. And, you know, producing drinks and a, a menu that kind of, you know, emphasises what we're best at locally. And you've got um, an aquaponics system as well in Tower, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, we have, yeah. Go on, explain what that is. Aquaponics and hydroponics. So we've got a system called an EvaGrow. Um, so that grows all of our like micro garnishes, and then we kind of bring them on basically to use them as our herbal. Uh, get a lot of um, I call them the swanky herbs and um, micro, yeah, micro herbs and cresses come in punnets generally in plastic bags and things. So that was kind of one area, and you want those flavors because they're they're amazing, they're strong. Um, so yeah, we installed a aquaponic wall, which is driven by basically I've got these um, Nile fish called tilapia. So it's a way that they're producing a lot of protein in the kind of the third world countries. Um, but it's in this tank system, so that provides all the nutrients. It's like a closed basic system. So the um, the nitrates that come from the fish basically feed the feed the grow wall. So we propagate it all in the Evergrow, and then it moves to the other system, which basically means we can bring things on, so we can get established plants that we can use as garnishing in food and drinks, mm. and to make our own cordials. Um, yeah. Chilies. It's fantastic. Um, and we'll come back and hear a little bit more about what you're doing at Tower in a minute because it is incredible. Every single detail has been looked at and a sustainable solution has been found to it, as far as I can tell. I haven't been able to find any fault in what you're doing just yet. <laughs> um, one thing I noticed you didn't mention is plastic straws, yeah. which 
it's a little bit of an issue for me, plastic straws, because if we've had this incredible push to remove plastic straws and it's happened so quickly, like, you know, a, a real concerted effort from consumers and from bars and restaurants alike to effectively eradicate them. And in the last two years, they've more or less, at least in the UK and, and certain other parts of Europe, vanished altogether. But for me, I kind of feel like there's a danger that when we sort of focus on one thing like plastic straws and... Um, you know, remove them from a bar and then feel very happy about doing that and pat ourselves on the back and say, well, our bar's a much more sustainable operation now, that we're in danger of missing the bigger picture. And Definitely. Still, you know, I was at um, Wimbledon watching the tennis back in the summer and uh, we were served pims to take onto the court. This is how I spend my summer days. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, big cup of pims, paper straw, tick box, but it was in a massive plastic cup. Mm. I was like, this is insane, you know? There's, they, 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 they feel like they're doing the right thing by removing the plastic straws and putting paper instead, but there's still a huge bit of single-use plastic there that my drink's being served in. So I don't know if there's a question here or not, really. It's more of a statement. Are we in danger of potentially missing sight of the bigger sustainability uh, possibilities by just kind of covering it up with the removal of plastic straws? What do you think, Lauren? I love this topic because we love the instant gratification of feeling like we've done a, a great job both locally and, and globally on something like the plastic straw. But it doesn't change the fact that you still walk into, whether you're at a, a big festival and event like similar to where you were in Wimbledon, or you walk into a bar that is littering the bar with a coaster or a napkin under every single drink that is on the bar and by the end of the night based on how many guests and how many drinks are being served how much water there are coasters and and paper all over the bar anyway i mean we've got we've got this obsession with excess we just we we don't just use one thing we use three when that one will do and i think moving to you know, to corn-based cups, I think is great for, for these, you know, big festivals and third space events. But it's not, one could be more sustainable to use than the other, but it doesn't necessarily negate the fact that it's still not sustainable. Mm. We still need to be making a, a better concerted effort, similar to what maybe Kettle One does with our little mule cups, that these are actually reusable. Mm. We can give someone at the at the door of a festival and say, this is your beverage cup for the entire evening, and you get to take it home with you afterwards, fill it with every single drink that you would like to try. Mm. And if you don't have a cup, then you don't get a drink. Mm. And that has to be sort of that concerted effort taken by, I think, more brands and more festivals. And, um, you know, the straws are, are really irritating. But still, 30 years from now, regardless of, you know, taking away the straws or not, there's still going to be more plastic than fish in the ocean. So we have to, as you say, we just need to be focused on a few more of those little things that we can do. On this next clip, uh, it's taken from an episode where I was joined by Tim Phillips-Johansson and Jamie Jones, two people I've known for a little while and who I have grown rather fond of, let's say. Now, we discussed the topic of wellness, particularly around exercise and how to achieve a balanced lifestyle, the benefits of having hobbies outside of your work. I think it's pretty important for as a two-prong that venue operators and owners and chefs are giving that staff meal that actually is going to be full of sustenance. Um, coupled with the fact that I think that yeah, the changing tide of bartending has meant that when I started 15, 18 years ago, whatever it was, there was always that dead corner in the bar where you would see 
generally where bartenders would keep their cigarettes, their lighter and like a Mars bar or something like that. Uh, and that would be, that would be their shift yeah. supplements, yeah. maybe an energy drink or something like yeah. that. And now you sort of go over and it's, it's generally like a granola bar. Or it's a bag of salted almonds. And it's a, yeah. And it's a kombucha or something. So I think that's, um, I mean, that's a, that's just a really sort of beautiful sort of way that the industry is changing. And, um, I think it's, I think it's important that, that the bartenders at least at the very least have that preparedness of having, you know, if it's, you know, if it's dark chocolate covered almonds that tickles your fancy, that used to be my thing, like halfway through a shift. Fancy. Yeah, well, you know, we're pretty fancy down in down in Oz these days, mate. We've got we've got all of it now. We've got books. Yeah, really good coffee. I'm not going to go down that route. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's going to get so cut yeah, anyway. Just, so just 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 be prepared for that. Granola bars, almonds, that kind of thing works better than um, than a toffee crisp. But also, I think also making sure that you've you've primed your body as well. It's it's three meals a day of some sort. It's having something decent for breakfast. You know, you you working in a bar, you know, you're not going to have a big meal for dinner. So it's making sure you've got the right things in your body at the first opportunity. Take that second hit during the middle of the shift if you can. And then by the end of it, if it's two, three, four in the morning, by the time you get home, you're not going to be eating anything too big and too heavy. So we used to do that on Fridays um, at Bulletin when we opened. It was generally a – we just didn't have the chance to, 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 to take a break. So we'd sort of set up the bar and then we'd open at four. But at 3.30, we'd, we'd sit down and we'd eat and that would be it for the, for the whole of the day. We'd very rarely even go for food after work. We might take a protein shake or something late at night, but that was it. And I remember like just force feeding myself these grain salads. <laughs> I knew they were just, they, they had the most sustenance. They were going to keep me full the longest. Yeah. It had everything I needed. I didn't even like them. Like don't tell my wife because she didn't, she, <laughs> she didn't make them. But it was just that I just knew that, you know what, this is going to keep me full for eight to 10 hours because um, I've put in the effort and I've made sure that I've stacked it with nutrients. But I think a lot of it is is, is sometimes it's just doing something for the benefit of your body, not not taking the shortcut for guilty pleasure. It's not just jumping down the route of the, the sugar fix, of the, the takeaway food, because that's going to be the quick fix, but it's not going to do you those favours long term. It's not going to make you feel good the next day. Yeah, but I think it's about stepping back and just looking at your habits and trying to work out the ones that are not conducive to like a happy, healthy life. And that kind of like desperate smash and grab eating like before or during a shift is would be one of those things, you know. I, mean, I don't think any of us here have stopped eating some of the nice things and the, the guilty little pleasures that we've always had, pizzas and whatever it might be. I still, it's not like I'm on a strict, strict diet and I only eat certain things. But the balance for me is that I can eat the things I want to eat because yeah. the exercise allows me to. That's to exactly it, and, and I, it, it's. E- I think it's easy um, for people like us when we talk about, oh, you need to go out and do running. It's going to be great for you. You know, sometimes that that may may not be uh, you know a suggestion that's well received because there's this idea that actually we've got pretty imbalanced lifestyles. Oh, you're all just concerned with diet and exercise and everything. But the whole purpose of being of doing this stuff is so that you can have another slice of cake or mm-hmm. you can enjoy a beer, uh, not so that you just give up all the things that, you know, are, are thought to be, you know, things that make you happy um, in in favour of, uh, you know, running around the place and eating, drinking yeah, protein shakes. I think it's the, the biggest buzzword in our industry at the moment is sustainability. Mm. Um, Bulletin Place was fortunate enough just to win an award for our sustainable bar program, and I've thought about that a lot. And it's it's not about the, the for us it's not about the composting ingredients and the, the the single use stuff and using whole ingredients kind of closed loop attitude. It's sustainability of staff, retaining staff. So as soon as bar owners and managers can take responsibility to keep their staff 
mentally prepared. Like feed them if you can, give them the breaks. Don't work them over 40 hours. Um, make sure that they're not working a close and coming in the next day um, for, for setup. Like all of these things, for me, that's that's sustainable practices which which create a better bar environment and a better team and uh, and a better bar. Making it part of your day, it sort of is like a domino effect. It leads to other kind of lifestyle changes because you don't want to undo all of the good work you're doing, right? Yeah. So it's diet. Do, do you guys have specific diet regimes, any types of food that you make sure you eat or don't eat? There was there was a time a couple of years ago um, where I was running a lot, going to the gym a few times a week, and I was on a quite a high animal protein, low carbohydrate diet. And and and, and honestly, well, I'm going to sit around the, t- the table with you guys and say that I'm a professional in any way. But what I found with that was um, I was. <laughs> I was constantly sad because I was missing out on bread and pasta, really. That was the thing. And and that coupled with the fact my flatulence was out of control with all with all the beef I was eating. Um and then, then you start sort of reading about sort of the impact that, that a diet like that has on the on the environment in general and um and you know, I, I don't wanna I mean, people turn vegetarian or vegan for a number of reasons. Um some of it's for animal welfare, some of it is for personal health, and some of it is for you know, the globe's health um, and whatever one of those pillars that you might choose it for uh, are all quite all quite worthy. Um, so for me, it was the, the personal health thing was kind of the big thing. So I found I came back from taking a year sabbatical, came back, um, had stopped eating meat, still ate, still ate fish, um, and I was making my own bread, making my own pasta, eating eating lots more of, or of that, and I was a lot happier. You sort of realize that one of the, one of the, the the biggest things that we're missing in a lot of our education through schools is, is 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 diet and nutrition. And I even look back at like the we would call them a home economics class where you, you'd cook something and the things we were cooking and this the is cake usually right yeah it's generally like <laughs> muffins or like gammon steaks with like a pineapple ring. And you're like, like what are we doing? It's one of your like, five a day. Yeah, what are we te- like? What are we? Te- why aren't we teaching kids? You know, how to like how to make a, a frittata, how to poach an egg, like how to do the basics to set themselves up for success once they move out of home. Just a point you touched on there that's not even related to diet as such, but actually cooking and preparing your own food. That there's something also kind of cathartic about that as well. Just like we were talking about running and getting in a flow state, standing in the kitchen, you know, mixing something up or chopping something. Um, preparing food, especially when it's for other people, I find it incredibly therapeutic. I mean, even though I work pretty long hours and often deadlines and, you know, bar openings, whatever, stressful stuff going on, when I'm at home, 90% of the time I make the effort to come down to the kitchen and actually prepare food for for my family and... I think the key thing that you said there is when you're at home, that, that mm. balance we're talking about here is life on the road is where this undoes itself because you, it, yeah. you are unable to to cook and create and make that balanced meal. The, yeah. the choices that you make actively are, are uh, thrown out the window when you're then and the being unsoci- wined and dined in a very nice sure. restaurant. And, and the unsociable hours of bartending as Absolutely. well, of course, upset that. So, you know, we've talked about how you would try and fit exercise into a kind of normal nine-to-five day, but if you're a bartender who's still kind of working extremely unsociable shifts their day starts at like 4 p.m and it finishes at 4 a.m um you know they get home just as the sun's coming up how and and i should say that and i think you guys would probably agree that during my time as a bartender um as i say i'm sure it was the same for you guys 
pulling exercise into that routine and those unsociable hours was not really something that occurred to me. Every day was just a grind. You get through it. It's fun. Don't get me wrong. You know, you get that sense of camaraderie with the team behind the bar. But, you know, I, the thought of kind of getting up at midday and then going for a run and then going into my shift would have been very tricky. So if we were to give some, like, genuinely usable advice to someone who's still working those kind of shifts as to what changes they can make to their lifestyle in order to improve themselves and the relationships with other people, what would you say? I would I'd 100% say that you should invest in the place you sleep. So the room where you actually mm. get your sleep, if you are getting home at, as the sun's coming up, making sure you obviously have got a nice comfortable bed that supports you, making sure you've got a dark room, um, making sure you, 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 you make your bed every day and coming back and you, you're going into a bit of a sanctuary, keeping your room clean, making sure that that space is a space where you can you can refuel yourself. Because as you said, you mean, you, you're probably doing 20,000 steps a night through through the course of a bar shift, not to mention all the squats, not to mention uh, all the reaches, you know, the box jumping onto the back bar. It's what we do in Australia. Uh, and then it's... Um, you do. You get tired out, and you're exactly right. You might be getting up at four, and I was probably living off five, six hours a night sleep when I was bartending frequently. But then on the weekends, my weekend when I'd have the night off, that's when I'd you know almost almost have that that ten, eleven hours, mm. and it's it's that binge sleeping. It's not it's not balanced necessarily. So I have you have to set yourself up for good sleep. That's that's probably my biggest tip. On the subject of how to nurture a happy and successful bar team, I'm going to take us back now to a conversation that I had with Anna Sebastian and Sean Finter. Now, this is one of the most important things to get right in order to run a successful hospitality business. And in this little clip, we cover how to recruit the right people for your team, how to keep teams motivated and engaged, and finally, how to retain great staff. What other ways can we sort of motivate and incentivize staff beyond just handing them cash or bonuses? And and how do you feel about the idea of bonusing staff on based on profits or revenue or you know achieving certain scores in customer feedback that kind of thing? Yeah, I think that um, when it comes to, to motivation, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's important that you're you're constantly measuring what the what the current engagement is. Um, you know, when I started to measure it regularly and and for us that was every quarter every 90 days um i found uh, you know you just if especially if you run a, a a busy bar or a few busy bars um you can lose touch and and you know you're there and you just see a snapshot of the business and you know i i think on particular quarters that everything's going great when it wasn't or or the other way around so first step is to make sure that you're doing that um secondly um don't um, try to take it on alone. If you've got a great team of people, um, ask your team, you know, we, we set up like a culture captain at each store and you could find a better name than that one, but someone who is going to work with leadership to read the feedback that we compiled, uh, that came from the team to, um, give us his or her input. And sometimes we had a few people on the team and to, to gather more info from the staff. You know, we wanted to constantly be working with them to, to, to see what we were capable of and, and doing. And then our, our celebration, um, you know, front of house to back of house, depending on what country in the world you're in, a front of house is, is in a tipped environment and back of house isn't. Um, you know, 50 extra dollars uh, a month to a bartender is not a meaningful amount of money in, in the U.S. Uh, it is a meaningful amount of money to, to someone who's working on the line in the kitchen, right? So we yeah. didn't. Uh, you know, at first we looked at all things as equal and, and they're not. So we, we, we'd be best to, to identify that. 
um, front of house, so with the with the bartenders, we cut alcohol out of out of the equation. Um, we really uh, invested in experiential celebrations. So, um, in the Australian market, for example, they had a company there uh, called Red Balloon Days that, that just does programs for for um, for staff and businesses. And and uh, one example, we had a, a bartender who won an incentive, um, which was a prize. He got to pick where he was going. He liked sharks. He went to the zoo, the Sydney Zoo. You can feed a chubby, uh, dormant shark uh, right out of your hand. And and when someone from front of house won, they got to pick someone from back of house to have that experience with them. So again, we were trying to break down the thickest wall in the building, which was the one between front of house and back of house. And that, that sort of thing, again, you know, we publicized that. We told people about it. They, you know, it was a really cool thing. It became something we were known for and sending people up in hot air balloons and out to uh, someone liked Harley's and there was a, got picked up in a sidecar for a Harley. Um, so whatever it was, you know, it, it seemed to go a lot further than giving someone 500 bucks, which would typically go towards paying down your credit card debt or whatever else might be going on. Yeah, it's an experience. I remember listening to you talking years ago in Tampa, I think when we first met, and you, I remember you saying how you have a credit card that you use in your venues when you're buying a drink or food or whatever, and then over the course of a year or whatever period, you'll rack up enough points on the card and you can use those points for a holiday or a hotel stay or a flight or whatever that you then gift to whoever's achieved something or it deserves a bonus. That's a clever way of doing it. Yeah, we that was for our peer-to-peer program. And I think anyone who's got a bar or restaurant, you know, two things that the credit cards were, were very useful for. One was, as you said, we got air miles on every purchase. So anything I could pay with a credit card, uh, we did, and then we just paid it off. We never paid interest. We paid it off before it was due. And secondly, um, if we ever bought a customer uh, a drink or a staff member, um, it always went on that credit card. And they'd see you take your card out of your pocket and pay for the drink. And it sent a really good message for the staff, too, that you know nobody gets free drinks here. We're, we're paying for things as we go. Um, but the air miles, we had our peer-to-peer awards, and whoever won it for the year, we would give them – uh, a trip to anywhere that Star Alliance, uh, which was a carrier we went with, uh, flew to two tickets to wherever you want to go, um, two thousand dollars in spending money, and an extra week's uh, vacation that year. And the the cost of that was so minimal for us, for like the 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 publicity and the stories and the, you know, the last guy that won was from Thailand. He brought his four year old daughter back to meet his family for the very first time. Oh wow! The photos I still have the photos. I still cry when <laughs> I see the pictures. You know what I mean? Just such an incredible thing. And and you met he was he was a dishwasher. Then he worked on the line. Today he has his own business. Um, but you imagine how many people lined up to work for us, and they hear these things and just go, "Man, I want to be a part of that." Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so let's talk a little bit about training programs like how much is too much training how much time is it sensible to allocate to you know building your staff's knowledge and their service skills and all that kind of thing every week and how much of that time really actually needs to be spent just them doing the job that you're paying them to do i think like first and foremost like for me it's about understanding what they want and what they want to learn what they want to know so we you can do all the product training in the world 
And we also encourage the guys to be like, I want to learn about tequila. I want to learn about coffee. I want to do this. And we'll make it happen. But I need that commitment from them. I'm not going to organise a training if someone, if 10 people, if, if only one person is going to come up. Um, so I think that's also like understanding their sort of needs, but also kind of just like maybe thinking a little bit outside the box. So maybe go, well, why don't we learn about how to build your own sort of like personal brand or how to manage your social media or media training, I think is really important. Public speaking is another. How to photograph cocktails. Yeah. I mean, that's quite an important skill, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, especially with the fact that everybody is obsessed with Instagram. It's, but it's really important. Don't pretend you're not. I know I am. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also just about, you know, kind of thinking a little bit differently and saying, well, okay, well, let's do this. There was a study that was done by Forbes and they asked like the top 500 CEOs of companies, um, what do you think people think of you? Mm. And they asked the CEOs, well, what's your, what do you think your public perception is? And they all wrote it down. And only 15% of those people were actually in line with what like their consumers thought or mm. their audience thought mm-hmm. of them. And I think that's a really interesting point. Like, If you don't ask people for feedback, if you don't ask people what they think of you or for honest feedback and ask honest questions, you know, one of the great questions of hospitality, you go to any bar, any restaurant, and there's, you know, someone comes to the table, they go, how is everything? And it's just such a dishonest question because you're never going to get an honest answer. But if you ask your honest questions, instead of just saying, like, oh, how's everything? Mm. If you've recommended a cocktail, for example... Ask that honest question. Do you mm. like the drink I recommend? Yeah, totally. You? Yeah. Are you know if someone likes it or not? Mm. I always say, look, I really recommend this cocktail, but if you don't like it, I'm happy to change it for you mm. and like I'll find a home for it. You know, it's not, you know, but I think by preparing people and making them ask those honest questions, you're going to get an honest answer. It's the same if you ask for feedback about yourself. When people are maybe they're not sure what they want to do in life, I'm just like, well, ask for feedback. What do people think of you? That might inspire that person to kind of be that guy or that girl or whoever to represent, you know, a niche in that industry. You know, when when I was working with um, bar and restaurant staff every day, one of the things that we talked about right from the the interview process through to pre-shift was that, you know, we're working in one of the toughest industries in the world. The average business in our industry goes bankrupt over the course of four years. Right. Being average is not good enough in this industry. Yeah. And and when somebody tells you, you know, that their experience, how was everything? And they say, good. Um, we would have to ask a follow up question to say what would have made it great. You know, we, we really want to be great and we would love your feedback. And our job, you know, I said I was getting out of the restaurant business on that level uh, around the time social media was coming in. Um, thank God I probably wouldn't sleep. <laughs> I had uh, eight restaurants. But, um, you know, I said our job is to, to solicit that feedback before it gets out of the building. Our final clip is taken from an episode that I recorded with Rene Fleur, uh, who is now f- former programs manager at Diageo and a certified mental health practitioner based out of New Orleans. And Natasha Bermudez, who's head of bar operations at a Peruvian Japanese restaurant in Brooklyn. In the clip, we discuss mental health in the industry, including who to talk to supporting colleagues and friends, how to recognize when you're suffering and what the industry can do to improve the well-being of those who work in it. People are really starting to pay a lot more attention to the needs of their employees beyond pay, right? To 
actual physical and mental needs um, and emotional needs of their employees, which is something, in my opinion, that the industry has needed to shift to, to shift towards um, for a long time now. And it and it is really encouraging to hear. Uh, I see a couple, you know, I see some places doing it down here in New Orleans, and it's really encouraging to hear that out there in New York that uh, they're on the same page too. That it's starting to shift slowly. That's great. Yeah, I'm a very big like when I hear anyone from other places like telling me like, yeah, this kind of things don't happen at my job. I'm like, well, but you gotta talk to your boss because if you're happy, then that means more money in general because <laughs> you're just gonna be performing better. So it just like, I don't know, like. A lot of people are doing it, but obviously we need to keep pushing for this kind of conversation. So everybody does it, you know, and it's not just for bartenders and servers and managers for the dishwasher that is working, you know, from before service until after everybody leaves, you know? Well, and I, and I heard you in there talking about kind of boundary setting too, which I think is another important thing to talk about in this conversation where you're like, I'm not going to work for somebody. I've made it very clear to my boss that this is what I need in order to perform at my best. And I think that, the more people that I think demand is a strong word, but I think it's accurate. The more people that demand that mm -hmm. kind of work environment in this industry uh, and the more normalizing normalized it becomes for, for people to set those boundaries. Like, yeah, I'm a hard worker. I will work my butt off for you. Uh, and these are the things that I need. And this is what I will do. And this is what I won't do. And I won't work without a break for eight hours. I'm, if, if I need to go have a, have a moment, I'm going to have to have, go have it, you know? Yeah. Boundaries are definitely very important. And I had to learn the hard way to set boundaries. And, you know, and once you set them, there's a, there's a whole nother level of respect and a whole nother level of, of like, you know, union in between your bosses and the staff, et cetera, um, which, you know, makes me so happy that I've been able to work with a group of individuals that allow me to, you know, set boundaries and respect my boundaries and vice versa. Yeah, I totally agree. I think... It's so important to have conversations about these things um, because, you know, employer, employee may have different expectations. Um, obviously, you know, you have things like, um, you know, what the responsibilities of an employee is set out in a job description, but you don't tend to have the responsibilities of an employer set out in the job description. Um, and, you know, with, unless there's a discussion, unless there's an honest conversation about what those responsibilities entail, then it's kind of unlikely, really, that they're going to be met, you know, comfortably from both sides. There's likely to be a deficit there. Um, and, you know, unless you've got an employer that really kind of, you know, is on the ball and is, 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 is almost overcompensating for perhaps what's missing from the rest of the industry, and you know, in which case you're very fortunate. So I think honest conversations is key there. Um, just going back to sort of coping strategies, um, Rene, I wondered, you know, we, we've talked a lot about different strategies uh you know breathing mindfulness um natasha mentioned you know yoga and stretching and um shadow boxing and i talked about running now eating as well now we kind of everyone's aware that these things are good for you we know that you know even someone who's having a really rough time of it who doesn't do any of these things um you know is on the lawn chair eating pizza um knows that these are the things they should be doing the the really real big question here is how do you actually start doing them? What is the best way to kind of start creating great habits for yourself? Um, that is an excellent question. And if there was a, a, a miracle answer, I wish I had it because I'd be rich beyond my wildest dreams right now. Um, but I, you know, I think that 
habit is exactly kind of the right word. We are creatures of habit. We learn through repetition. Um, just like, you know, you know, you start doing five push-ups a day and you do them every day. And by the third week, you can now do seven push-ups. And then by the seventh week, you can do 10. Just like you build muscles um, and you need repetition to do that, um, it's, it's the same with habits, right? And so recognizing that a lot of the habits we formed, um, I'm going to refer to them as coping mechanisms, right? They, they served a purpose. They did something for us. And they probably did a really good job of it for a long time. And through, as we grow and change, though we outgrow some of those coping mechanisms and we need to, we need to develop new ones, but we can't expect that we're just going to do something one time um, and that we're, and, and that it's going to become a habit. We can't expect that it's going to be necessarily easy even, right? I think that it really comes down to intention and this idea that if your intention is to change your lifestyle or to maybe augment it or add something or take something away that you have to, we, it requires practice. Uh, nobody got behind the bar the first day and, uh, you know, did everything perfectly and didn't drop anything or, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and, you know, it's taken us, some of us, you know, decades to, to kind of perfect, um, our style and our, and our service style. And just like that, um, we've spent decades developing these unhealthy, let's say, or, I don't even want to say unhealthy. I feel like that's too much. Just uh, these developing these coping mechanisms that have outlived their use, right? Mm. They're they're now unhelpful. they're not unhelpful. Thank you. Yeah, perfect. And and so and so you know, thinking about all the time that we spent, you know, perfecting those unhelpful coping mechanisms, it's not going to take necessarily the exact same amount of time to start something new, but it is going to take intention um, and dedication to really making something a part of your life is just doing it over and over and over again until it becomes second nature. Like this other stuff is, mm. I, I hate saying that because I know it's a hard, it's a hard way to, you know, yeah, there's no easy way of answering it. And of course it takes, it takes, it takes, you know, uh, you have to take action to actually create these habits that don't come around naturally. Unfortunately, bad habits seem to come around more easily than good ones. Um, <laughs> probably because we're, we're humans and we sort of tend to take the path of least resistance. But I read a great book recently actually called Atomic Habits and it was all about building great habits and the way the author described it, and I'm probably going to mess this up, but I'll give it a go, is you need to look at what the goal is that you're trying to achieve and then create the habits that are going to allow you to get there. That is all for this Highlights episode focusing on the subjects of wellness and sustainability hope you have enjoyed it and if you have enjoyed it and you haven't listened to the episodes which we've taken these excerpts from then you really should go back and check them out because there's so much valuable discussion and content in there remember you can get any of them on your preferred podcast channel and while you're there browsing podcasts don't forget to rate and subscribe to hear more and if you haven't already make sure you become a diageo bar academy member Head over to diageobaracademy.com for the latest industry news, events, and inspiration. And subscribe to get it emailed to you. Thank you for listening. Until next time.